Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. In this episode, I'm speaking to E.T. Johnson, Lucky Ekman, and T-Bear Larson about their involvement in the F4G Wild Weasel. We had originally intended to also talk about the AGM-88 Harm and to talk about the F-16CJ, which replaced the F4G, but we actually ran out of time. But fear not, because we've got a plan. We're going to come back and do two more interviews, one about the Harm, and hopefully if we can get an additional panelist on the experience of the Harm and F4G pairing in Operation Desert Storm. And then we'll do our third interview, which will be looking at the replacement of the F4G in the form of the F-16CJ and some of the experiences while weaseling during the Balkans conflicts. Before I let you get on with listening to these guys introduce themselves, can I just ask a simple thing? If you enjoy this video, please hit the thumbs up button and share it with somebody. If you enjoy it and you have a question or a comment, then please leave a comment here. Those are things that really help the YouTube algorithm figure out whether or not content is worth promoting to other people. And of course, if you're not subscribed already, please feel free to do that. If you hit the bell button, you'll get a notification of when the next two episodes are up. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the video. Do a sync. <laughs> the only round we're going to get today, Lucky. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome back to 10% True, or T Barry, in your case, welcome to 10% True. Thanks for joining me on this special podcast. I appreciate your time. So today we are going to really sort of pick up where we left off. In the last conversation um, with uh, E.T. and Lucky, we were talking about uh, the wild weasel experience in Vietnam. I think we got to about uh, 1972, late 71, 1972 or so, and then we we completed the, we wrapped up the, the conversation. So we're going to be picking up from there, finding out a little bit about what led to the F4G, uh, perhaps the most famous wild weasel of all, and your experiences with that. Let's start then with a quick reintroduction, Lucky and, and E.T. for you guys and, and T-Bear. I don't know who wants to kick off, but maybe you could tell us quickly a little bit about yourselves. T-Bear, you go first. Well, I have, uh, I've watched the previous editions of this, of the weasels in Southeast Asia, primarily 105s. I'm a product of that. I was in the 105s uh, at Karat uh, in 71, 72. Uh, left there to go to Europe in the F4C wild weasel. And like BT said earlier, uh, uh, got a theater checkout instead of going to RTU in the F4. Uh, our squadron was experience rich. 
uh, with F4. Uh, there's one one guy in the squadron that did not have a combat tour. Most had two. And the F4C Wild Weasel in Europe was the mainstay as a bridge between the 105 and the F, uh, F4G. Uh, we I was in that for uh, uh, in the squadron or wing for four years and then spent two years still attached to fly out with the squadron um, at headquarters USAFE. Uh, still flying the F4C Wild Weasel. Uh, I went from there to uh, becoming the, uh, one of the initial cadre of instructors in the F4G and became one of the flight test guys uh, that flew the initial sorties in the uh, IOT&E and FOT&E of the basic APR38 system. And at the time, working on the requirements, exactly driving towards the high-speed anti-radiation missile. So uh, uh, I kind of got in the ground floor of it by accident. I didn't really want to go to George, but uh, Mother MPC sent us there. And uh, so I was there and uh, <clears throat> and lived through it. Went from there to uh, uh, spent two years there working on the flight test business, primarily on the F4G and some on the harm fired uh, harm in the flight test environment and, and got into that. Uh, Afotech said, we dubbed thee, we need you at uh, headquarters Afotech to be the test manager for the high-speed anti-radiation missile. And uh, so I, I did that while working on the F4G also because it had to be hosted on the F4G. So I knew both sides of that equation. Uh, spent two, uh, I think two and a half years there and then became the test director back at George for uh, both the harm, and then we were doing an upgrade to the APR-38, uh, the two-phased upgrade, uh, one for uh, expand the computer. We, we were whacking it out uh, to, from 64K to uh, 256K, and that was 48 pounds of muscle. And uh, <laughs> we giggle about that now, but you know uh, that's, that was that time frame. And uh, from there, I went to the Pentagon and where I ended up being the PEM for all those things. So I owned the money and so I could influence things. Uh, and there's some stories there from Desert Shield and Desert Storm. If you own the money, you can get a lot done. Um, but that's my background. Uh, I've been weasel three, four and five. Uh, and then uh, when we transferred to an F-16, as I mentioned, I was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Pentagon. I owned the money for harm so I could influence. Uh, and Joe Ralston wanted it, to, uh, General Ralston, wanted it to be on the F-16 and retire the F-4Gs. And of course, uh, the words out of my mouth were, yes, sir, uh, albeit reluctantly. Um, and and uh, it's, it's, it's a whole separate subject. Let's, let's get to that at the end. I'd be, I'd be fascinated to hear that insight. There's that might be classified. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> ET, e thank, thanks, T Bear. So, ET, quick intro from you. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, ET Johnson. Uh, when T Bear left uh, Karat, I filled a back seat with Kevin Stogsdill, his previous uh, front seater. Uh, Kevin G. Time. <laughs> yeah. Booray. Yeah. Booray. <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I met him in the bar. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I uh, went through linebacker one over there, 
And then I didn't get back into the weasels. I went uh, straight from Karat after picking up the family and whatnot, went over to RF Woodbridge in uh, this high-tech airplane called the F-4D. And they were quite concerned about that because I, like UT Bears, skipped RTU. I never had one in the F-4 for that matter. All I had was the 30 days at Nellis in the 105, then blasted off into the, you know, however long it took me to upgrade the F-4D with the uh, WRCS, which is the most complicated system in the world to drop bombs with. <laughs> and they thought it was going to be a challenge without me having been through RTU. But anyhow, I made it through, survived there for four years. Uh, kept my fingers in the EW side of it as much as I could. Did a lot of chaff crap over Europe. And there's probably still chaff floating around in the air over there, especially around RAF Woodbridge. We had a few accidental dispensers there. But <clears throat> anyhow, I went from there completely out of my realm back into the uh, systems command side of the house in the E4B at uh, Hanscom, the Airborne Command Post. Mm. Spent my purgatory there for three years. Meanwhile, everything was going on in the in the harm and the F4G world, uh, unknowns to me exactly what was going on. I knew about it, was not able to get into the program right away, but eventually uh, left uh, left uh, left Hanscom and went to Germany. And that's where the F4G was starting to turn up. <clears throat> and that was my first introduction to F4G. Uh, went through my mini RTU at George before getting there, obviously. And then spent three years at uh, at Spang. Left Spang, went to Eglin, retired after four years at Eglin, but all that time at Eglin was involved in the uh, uh, test and evaluation of the hardware software and the F4G harm. Uh, once I retired and was a DOD contractor kind of puke for the next uh, 30 years. Uh, stayed in the same building, carried the same desk around from floor five to floor number four, down to the first floor, up to the third floor, but I had my stuff. They uh, still found with, you every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Milk and money out of T-Bear and the rest of the bodies that had money and uh, uh, continued on the F4G test and evaluation from Eglin, but with our detach detachment that was out of George, uh, both there and uh, also on the harm side of the house. And then that transition, like T-Bear said, into the harm, harm into the F-16 and then followed that F-16 routine uh, all the way until I left in 2016 there at Eglin. Uh, a little dabbling in the F-35, but not much, but primarily harm on the F-16 side of the house. And HTS, of course, that was kind of the APR 37 or 3848 combination. Thank you. Lucky. Well, I was kind of long in the tooth by the time the harm came along and the F-4G, <laughs> I was, uh, I, uh, after, after Southeast Asia, I went and hid out at the academy as an instructor for three years, came back into Georgia as the F-105G was really long in the teeth. Uh, the F-4G was going to be the biggest and uh, greatest and latest uh, and ended up uh, commanding one of the last F-105G squadrons and then the first of the F-4G operational squadron charged with uh, both uh, absorbing the F-4G into a deployable squadron that we could go fight the war in Central Europe and the full of the gap, uh, at the same time training half the air crews. And so I got to know a whole bunch of the folks that came through there. Uh, and uh, But that time we were still flying uh, with the 
AGM-78 on the F4G because the harm was a glimmer in somebody's eye uh, and was being worked very hard up at, uh, up at China Lake. And uh, we, uh, so I never got to actually fly with the, uh, with the harm, <clears throat> but I appreciated what was, what was going on with it. As far as the F4G was concerned, as much as I love the thud, the F4G was uh, so much more maneuverable with its slats and its uh, maneuvering capability and its power uh, that, uh, that I loved being in the F4G. Uh, and it gave us a whole new dimension. <laughs> For a while, my uh, 563rd TAC Fighter Squadron was getting more aggressor sorties uh, than any other squadron in the Air Force because I was convinced that what we'd seen in Southeast Asia was that the, uh, the MiGs would come after the F4G, uh, after the weasels, uh, just because we were causing them so much trouble. And, uh, and so they felt that they could uh, send, them, send the air-to-air capability, the counter-air capability after the weasels and protect their IADs to a great degree by doing that. And so I, I realized that. And so we, we did a whole bunch of things in the F4G. Uh, and, uh, and, but uh, once I got through commanding that squadron there at George, uh, I left uh, the F4G and went, to, uh, went into a variety of staff jobs, including uh, uh, one in the joint staff and then one in Saudi Arabia uh, in the uh, military training mission, which is where I learned about the alarm uh, capability. Uh, but I never came back to the weasels. Uh, when I went back to flying, uh, after being in Saudi Arabia, I went to air-to-air Wesson, and we were shooting air-to-air missiles. And so uh, I never uh, got back off that off-ramp and back in into the weasels, except uh, Sun Ken uh, went through uh, uh, the academy and glider instructing, instructing and uh, two and a half years in the fighter bank went into the uh, went into the F-16 and after an initial tour of Cannon, he went into the weasels and stayed there. And so he he basically was my toehold in the uh, F-16 CJ and and the uh, harm missile and the harm targeting pod on the F-16. Uh, so that's, uh, that, that's where my relationship with the F-4G system and the uh, F-16 uh, kind of tied in together. But of course, Ken never could discuss anything classified with me, but he discussed it with UET a lot when he was a weapons officer in the, in the CJ squadrons. Yeah, I got a call from the from overseas in the Japan arena one day, and this is that Ekman. I wonder if that had any relationship at all. Sure enough, there's this Captain Ekman calling me from from Japan, asking information on <clears throat> how to employ harm and uh, and how to go program Alix and all sorts of things. And we've kind of continued all the way up until he uh, he left the Weasel program, and now I think what he's a two star overseas now. He's a two star. Uh... Uh, hurting 54 countries in Africa. He's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, who knew? I guess, I guess <laughs> four countries going 54 different ways are a little more complicated than ours. 
<laughs> pick small, up, small world. Pick yeah. up on, on Lucky's uh, flying at Wessup. Uh, it, that was the fitting end of all the F4Gs as a target for Wessup uh, because they were a, a contiguous block cycle. We had more airplanes in one block than any other block of F4s. Uh, they ha had a, a common configuration, so they were able to modify those after they were retired into uh, drones to shoot down, and most of the F4Gs now rest in the uh, Gulf. Yeah, and I, I had a, a big beak for a long time at Joe Ralston because it appeared that he had chosen the F4Gs capriciously to be killed first because right after Desert Storm, uh, just as with the SR-71 when it was retired, the crew force was not happy at losing its airplane, especially having the, uh, the EWOs on board to gather and, and assess intelligence. And so there was a kind of a groundswell of saying, don't, don't retire the F4G. And Joe Ralston solved that problem uh, by killing them first in the drone F4 drone program. Now, he did it easier than that. With Malice, he went down and got rid of all the uh, uh, APR-38 hardware. Aha, uh -huh. okay. And I'll be going on and off mute, by the way. I have some contractors in here beating up my house so i don't want so at the point at which you all came back from vietnam then and and i know some of this is going to um, be a repeat of what we talked about in in the last call but but it's probably worth setting the stage then or setting the scene for the years that were to follow the, the c model f4 uh, and the g model uh, and actually the f105g because i think we only got to the f105 F, I think, in our in our conversations, I don't know if we got as far as the G, but 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 what was the experience? What were the learning outcomes? What did you think technically? You were your limitations. What were your limitations tactically? Um, what was the impetus that led then to the development of the more advanced Wildwings on the form of the F four G? Well, our big limitation was uh, in the F one hundred five was that we could only carry one AGM-78 and two uh, kind of throwaway shrikes uh, that we knew the bad guys could, uh, could spot coming and they, they could uh, uh, defeat simply by uh, using a blinking uh, emission control kind of technique. And the shrike could get confused, but the AGM-78 was better than that. And, uh, so, and we were maneuver limited. F-105G was a big, heavy airplane that would go like stink, but its wing loading was about 110 pounds per square feet. Uh, and so when it came to dodging SAMs, we could do okay with the SA-2, but some of the other SAMs that were coming up were more maneuverable, and we needed a better maneuvering capability to be able to defeat an inbound uh, uh, surface-to-air missile. Uh, and that's where the F-4G really shone with the slats on it and everything. It had uh, great maneuvering capability, great power, uh, and uh, sparrows on board. It could uh, defend itself uh, against the air-to-air -air threat. So uh, that's what we found so attractive about the F-4G. I remember a conversation with General Creech. He came through my squadron there at George, and we just transitioned from uh, being the 561st 
uh, tactical fighter squadron with black and, and yellow colors to the F-4G squadron, 563rd, with white and red colors. He walked in and I'm talking to him about what a great airplane the F-4G is and what a difference it's making to us as weasels. And all he saw was red and white, black and yellow. And uh, uh, it, there was nothing there that even remotely remembered, uh, resembled Creech Brown. And so uh, when he, as he left there, uh, he called General Hardinger down at 12th Air Force and said, I've just been in the worst fighter squadron in the Air Force. Well, you can imagine, you can imagine how my next uh, 18 months were in command of that squadron. Uh, we did a lot of uh, uh, maintenance and, and improvement in that uh, World War II building as a result of that. Creech, Creech had a good reputation, though, didn't he? Or, or, have I, or have I missed something? Uh, he was a stickler. Uh, he had been a Skyblazer pilot uh, in Europe, which was the uh, uh, European analog of the Thunderbirds. Uh, and so he was very much... When, when Creech came to the squadron, I was counseled to uh, uh, put out some Yves Saint Laurent towels in the, in the men's room uh, because the first thing he would do when he got any place was to go in, wash his hands and comb his hair. Uh, and so uh, he, he was very much a, uh, uh, a, a style kind of guy, uh, very much Im impressed with the uh, uh, looking like a Thunderbird all the time or looking like a Skyblazer all the time. Uh, he did command TAC for uh, five very, uh, very important years uh, and uh, gave us some top cover for Red Flag and he created uh, RDJTF uh, to uh, go fight in the Kapolda Gap or in, to go fight in, uh, in Iran uh, before we much knew anything about that problem. And so he did a lot for TAC and was appreciated for that, but he was also uh, a stickler for appearances. Yeah, I remember Creech flying the Skyblazers at Bitburg. I was a kid there in Building 2, so from my back window, I could watch over the airfield and see the Skyblazers practice all the time, but that was quite a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> Steve, there was one thing that, and I hadn't realized until I found a, a paper that was written by, uh, uh, what's his name, Jerry Looper. Does that ring a bell, T-Bear? I know who he is, yeah. Anyhow, I guess the F4G stuff had actually been started back in the 1968 time frame. And so while we were winging our way through the air, not having a clue where all the sand sites were at all, there was actually a program going on that eventually was the F4G. And the resulting uh, hardware and software and all that kind of crap uh, going on at the time, we were flinging our, our bodies through the air and over North Vietnam. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very interesting paper where you go through the the uh, the pre pre you know development phases and who was involved and all that kind of crap. Gets into testing stuff out of George. Talks about Bernie Conway and the night times that they used to have out there uh, waiting for test information to come back from China Lake to get the George and all that. Anyhow, it's quite interesting history, and I didn't realize that it started back then. It was actually somebody out there working the program. So when the G model became available in 78, it had already been going on for, you know, a good nine to ten years. And not What, what not the really. issue was is uh, I'll, I'll give you a little of this, and then I'll uh, get back to your original question, uh, Steve. Uh, 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, what the shortfalls were from uh, Lucky was right about from the airframe point of view, and I'll talk a bit, little bit about it from the electronics point of view. But uh, uh, they initially had started developing, uh, spinning off some of the reconnaissance, uh, electronic reconnaissance uh, asset uh, technology, and trying. To, the issue was size of the receivers and, and stuff, and the technology was just starting to get to a place where they could put it in a fighter-sized aircraft. It wasn't quite soup yet, and digitization wasn't quite what it was uh, yet, but they got the first uh, into the F4D airframe and they uh, looked like they were gonna have a winner there. That The initial one and the first one I flew in uh, was an E-model version, but it, the initial computer was an 8K uh, computer. Uh, and, and uh, then they decided on finding this contiguous uh, number of airframes uh, and moving it to the E model. And they did two prototypes, uh, 263 and what's the other one? Kenny, I thought I'd never forget. Anyway, uh, um, uh, they start, started that over at uh, Edwards and, and did the fit and made sure that the CG stuff and all the flyability and stuff. And then they started the avionics. Um, when we came back from Vietnam, all of us, uh, the W side of the house anyway, they had transposed the APR 35, 36, 37, which we, the later model F4Gs had, uh, F105Gs had, and they transformed that into the F4C weasel, and that's what we had in Europe uh, to play with, and it was pretty, um, about as good as you can get analog system-wise. Uh, tuning it and manual and, and a lot of the stuff was driven by the B-52 guys that were EYs that went into the back seats and uh, uh, traces of uh, the different frequency bands and tuning it so that you could hear it and and that's driven by the sensitivity. What the real requirements that came out of Southeast Asia is, is those of us that have been in knife fights don't want to be in knife fights anymore. <laughs> We'd rather be uh, standing <laughs> off with a uh, a magnum or a, a rifle and, and be able to detect, process, find out exactly where you are and sniper you instead of uh, going in there and uh, swinging with your machete trying to make sure you cut it. I mean, the the APR-30, uh, the Shrike, uh, AGM-45, was a shot in the dark as lucky uh, said because it had to be launched into a basket. And in order to do that, you had to have it on there and, and bore sight a little bit and then do a dip check and, and pull. And it was a gut feeling. And hopefully it was in the basket or, and, and do it. Um, and, and Ed talked about it in the previous uh, discussion is you listen to the strike or you listen to the audio because that was the most sensitive receiver on the airplane. Well, the APR 38 requirements thus were that you would have enough sensitivity so that you would have that standoff capability. You could stand back and detect them. You wouldn't have to listen to the audio. The receiver would do it for you. The receiver would also help identify exactly what you were seeing. And we wanted that so that you, you didn't spend your time sorting out what stuff was on the scope. The machine did it for you. 
And it was hard for us as uh, old EWs with ears and, and uh, processing to say that there was a machine that could do that for us. And that was the, the basis of what we were trying to do with the airplane is get a receiver in there that would do that task for us from a standoff range that then we could stand back, figure out what the lay of the land was, what the EOB was, pick and choose what target we went into. And then if we had to have a knife fight and, and drop the bombs on it, you went in there intelligently with a knowledge of what the threat environment was with the knowledge of where the threat did locate. And that was the other item is locate the threat to a basket size. And we had arguments about very uh, various weapons and how close would we have to know where it was within visual range, for instance, if we're going to drop bombs. So we got to know within this area. And so we worked those numbers out. And so we charged these guys to do that. And that's what we wanted. That was a requirement. Um, the guys that won it were uh, McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis. Uh, the, uh, at that juncture, uh, there was a Dr. John Parks who uh, got his PhD by writing an algorithm that was able to take uh, the waveforms and figure out through interferometry uh, and I'm not going to go into how, how that works because it's a, a standalone lecture of about 45 minutes. Uh, it would, I could still probably do it because I did it enough times on the stage. But he was able to do that mathematically, determine what the range was to an emitter. As long as the emitter, you got enough cuts on it and enough uh, uh, energy to, to be above threshold, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, the easiest way to explain it to people is uh, think of yourself at 20,000 feet and uh, you have an emitter out there and you have an air basket for that. And it's like a flashlight. You shine from your you to the ground. So that flashlight's going to have this ellipse, right? And it, the emitter's somewhere in that ellipse. And as you got more and more intelligent, the the lip size got smaller and smaller and the machine could figure out that, yes, I'm getting more confidence and, and that's what it is. It's a confidence level uh, and more confidence, and more confidence, more confidence. And, oh, I really believe in this now. And it could, the machine would tell you that I'm this confident or a range quality one, range quality two, and range quality three is what we used to call it. And bottom line is range quality three is it's out there and yeah, it's, available range quality two is yeah we, we pretty much know where it is probably good enough to shoot a missile at yeah and we could get it into the basket range quality one was that yeah. if you were to take this range and offset and roll and roll in it would probably be within your pipper and that was kind of what the the range quality system and that was nice as sliced bread for those of us that have had range quality decided by how far the, the, the spillback from the uh, analog signal was on your APR 2526. And it was absolutely incredible. The first time I saw it was at Vegas. I stopped by there on the way to George to make one last attempt not to go to George. 
and uh, <laughs> met, met Denny Larson and Denny Haney and uh, the F4G test team there with Sunny Lane. And uh, they took me down and showed me on the bench. I went, whoa, this is way cool. And if you have the range known and the machine has told you exactly what the threats are, A, B, C, and D, and you were targeted for today is C's, you went after the C, you highlighted it, and let it get to range quality one and say goodnight. And you were able to, it opened up all kind of different world on tactics, all kind of different world on requirements for uh, missiles. And one of the things that initially we gave them feedback on is, if you can do that, you can help us with some elevation for the Shrike. Oh yeah, we can do that. They determined a way that helped us have bars in there that you could shoot the Shrike and be in more accurate in, in employment. We upped the PK significantly and without talking real hard numbers, just of that, as Lucky called it, a throwaway missile for the 105s when we were using it to a, a pretty, they had to respect it a little bit more because there's more effectiveness. The nice thing about that all was that uh, after you got to level one in terms of your confidence in the geolocation of the site, then you could uh, do a pop-up maneuver and uh, uh, put iron bombs on the site uh, and never even see it. If it was be beautifully camouflaged as so many were in Vietnam, didn't make any difference. That site was going to be under the pit burn. If you wanted to, you could put iron bombs on it. If you had CBUs, you could damn sure get it because of the CBU's footprint. And it was just uh, it was just a godsend. We went from being suppressors to killers again uh, with the capability on board the F4G. The whole ranging concept was also tied together with HARM and what it was doing and, and a lot of design into how HARM software and hardware worked was such that it was kind of complementary between the two systems on how accurate can the the APR find the system and what were the capabilities accuracy wise on DF and all that and the harm side of the house too, such that you could go fire like T-Bear said earlier in the range known mode saying, I don't really need the missile to come off the rail looking for an emitter like the Navy does. I can go and say, I know where the guy is within these, within these uh, values left and right up and down. So I can wait until and fire the missile and wait till it gets to a point that when it opens its eyes and starts looking from a missile standpoint, it can say with reasonable confidence or high reasonable confidence that the site's probably going to be within my field of view when I the harm open my eyes. And at that point in time, uh, harm would have a fairly good, fairly good probability of kill if the emitter stayed on the air and uh, he was emitting at the time the harm opened its eyes and it was, you know, Kitty bar the bar the door. Yeah, and Ed, uh, that for when I talked earlier about uh, an Air Force unique requirement, range known ended up becoming that very thing, range known. Uh, the Navy uh, uh, was, and we were very happy with ARM uh, with the other modes as it was designed. But once the ARM people saw the accuracy of the APR thirty eight, and once we realized. Uh, the additional specificity that it would give you if you could uh, put it in a basket and really point it at a specific emitter. This, if your target's for C today, C1 and C2 or C3, you could pick which one you wanted to take out. 
uh, that would help us. And so we had a, in fact, Range Known was invented at a honky tonk in just outside of Louisville one night after spending a lot of hours at TI in Louisville, Texas. Uh, Mike Reich, uh, who's an analysis guy at uh, Afotech, and my uh, Byron Beal, the, my lead engineer on the test team, and myself, and uh, Al Bro, who was a TI guy, and he forced uh, one of the TI fellows who was one bright Hosean, I can't pull his name out right now, and literally on the back of a bar napkin. This is a fact, because I was there, and somewhere in my house is that bar napkin. Uh, we said, well, why, Mike Reich said, why, why can't we do that? And Byron went, you, yeah, and they were talking technical stuff uh, about, because you had the rate gyros available and over time, da-da-da-da-da, you could figure out exactly the trajectory of harm, and thus you could determine when you wanted to open your eye and how if you got this amount of accuracy of a handoff. And that was the genesis of range known. And uh, w w that was a big battle. And when we said we started with 8K and they, they upgraded to 64K uh, for the fielding of it, there was a 64K computer in there, 4G. And that said, hey, we're going to have to have more computer. So we started a program, performance upgrade program, phase one. And we went all the way up to 256K. And we were somebody and quite, <laughs> quite frankly that's what we're going to have to have in order to get the the handoff generate the handoff from command and control capability of harm so we, we knew we had to make that investment to, to host harm can, can you can you expand on that a little bit so i understand i think you know broadly what you're talking about in terms of knowing whether the threat emitter is and therefore being able to give the missile the best chance of being able to hit it. What's the relevance of that expanded memory, though? What is the memory for? Uh, you know, you you kind of assume that what you want is processing power. So, uh, but memory obviously was the limiting factor. So, can you talk a bit more about why that was important? Well, because when you're doing all these things, <laughs> one at the juncture we had to maintain all existing weapons, AGM seventy eight, and we're going to add AGM eighty eight on top of it. Each one of those had their own uh, command and control overhead, let's call it that, and their own handoff capability. In other words, you're going to hand off this information to the, the missile, and it's totally unique. Uh, it was a uh, GD, a General Dynamics missile. Uh, AGM-78 was a spinoff of uh, uh, the standard arm, which is still employed. The missile is on the uh, Navy. And this one was uniquely built by the Navy. This one being a harm was uniquely built by the Navy. A7s and the A6s, A6s, and then later EA6Bs. Uh, and so it had to have a kind of a generic handoff, which carried some overhead. Uh, remember at this juncture, we were making analog airplanes into digital machines. And that was really tough because we're spending a, really tough in the essence of you had a lot of analog interfaces you had to, to care and feed. <laughs> so all that ate up memory. And when you think about it, 256K, you don't even have a, a, a small JPEG that is that small anymore. Uh, and we were cramming that all in there. Say nothing about doing it with 64K. 
and we took apart we took apart and put back together park ranger dr parks invented the ranging algorithm so we called it the park ranger and uh, uh we took took apart to my knowledge three different times uh the park ranger put it back together to just to, to decrease the size of the memory in the in the computer and that was the only reason and not because it wasn't working well it's just how do we code it more efficiently so that it fits and, and we can do all the other maintenance stuff that we had to do to run uh, search algorithms. Remember, the receivers had to be driven with a search uh, algorithms that were controlled. We had eight scan tables in there uh, that were controlled. Every kind of emitter is selective, selectively. You could what you could look for from the cockpit. We had to not only search for them, but then it had to maintain the receiver to look enough to get enough cuts and portray that on the screen. So we had a, we were working uh, pilot vehicle interface, PVI. Uh, we were working that data with uh, the folks that build the receiver were different than the guys that built the displays. And the guys that built the displays had their own unique <laughs> interface and they were right on the edge uh, of technology. And we had to drive those too. So all this stuff, when you think about what we did with 8K and then 64K, a computer, it was awesome. It was unbelievable. And that uh, if you want to know details, and unfortunately, most of it's classified uh, about the exact frequency ranges and everything else, all that had to be packed in for every one of the emitters. We had uh, at one juncture, we had 212 emitters. And then you probably know better than I do how many emitters we ended up with the F4G. We were, uh, we ended up everyone had to have a separate line entry for an understanding of it. And it's called the uh, MDF man, uh, mission data file, mission data file for the emitters. And each one of those had to have a stream on it, whether you wanted to range on it or not range on it. Each one had to be maintained in an EOB electronic order of battle on whether you're ranging on it, how many cuts did you have? How can you rely on it? How, what was the quality of the cuts so that you could determine whether it was a range quality one, range quality two, range quality three, and oh, by the way, in all the middle of this, the number one thing that all of us brought back from Vietnam was staying alive. So missile yeah. guidance had to be looked at all the time. Missile guidance, you'd flash back to look for missile guidance all the time for all. And now in Vietnam, we were worried about two, three different SAM systems looking for missile guidance. All of a sudden we're, we're looking at six, seven, eight weapon systems. Uh, and surface-to-air missile systems. And each one with a unique missile guidance system, with a unique uh, uh, signature, with a unique uh, look pattern for the receivers. So this all had to be done within the computer to figure out the flashback. And it was a different flashback for just looking at it grossly. Is it even have a signal presence? And if you did, you had to immediately go back and look at it again with a refresh rate to make sure you had the right decoding on it for what kind of missile it is, what kind of uh, status of the missile, what is a kind of launch, yes, no. All this was done in the 64K computer. And we, quite frankly, didn't have very much room, and it was very efficiently done. We had to beat up the McDonnell Douglas numerous times because they, oh, well, we'll just uh, uh, eliminate that branch by just locking it off. No, no. When you eliminate that branch, you take them out of the code because we don't have enough room. 
that waste yeah. any ones and zeros. And, and the side effect of all of that, all that genius that went into that, was that the TIAC recorder in the F4G offered yes. to the intelligence community the prospect that the F4G might become an electronic intelligence gathering <laughs> platform to replace the uh, E66, the EB66s. And we, <clears throat> and we had to resist that because our job was to suppress and kill the threats, not to record them for the intelligence community. <clears throat> the original requirement came back, uh, good gravy, this is, what was that, a Mars? What was that thing we had in the 105? Can't it even was, remember. Yeah, it was a Mars recorder, I think. Yeah, and it, it would play back the... Uh, no, wait a minute, no, it was a... Uh, Conrack? No, Conrack, yeah. F4G. And the F4G was a Conrack recorder. Right, so it was a Mars recorder then back, I think, in the 105. And, and that didn't work for sour beans uh, in the 105. So, so they said that was another requirement that they had on the F4G. Make sure you can record the data so we could. And the, the, the intent was to play back the mission and, do, uh, and get the training for the people as well as uh, do battle damage assessment, et cetera, et cetera. Was it a smart shot? Did, did we get it? And as such, do we have to go back again? And that's <clears throat> horrible to have to go back again. So that was the intent of it. So the Conrad recorder was part of part and parcel of every single F4G. And in fact, the, the uh, Conrad playback station became another challenge and every squadron had one of them and, and, uh, Lucky can probably speak to this, but it ended up being a storage facility in the back of the squadron somewhere that <laughs> hardly ever used for a lot of reasons. One, it had a very high failure rate. And number two, the Conrack itself, the Conrack playback station was one of the first attempts for a digital recording uh, playback unit. And it is the number one unit of the Conrack playback station is in the Smithsonian as such. Uh. And that's always been a fight between the, the intel community and the tactical community is you get the F4, back then the, the 105, then the F4G, now the F16. I'm sure the same thing, I know this, the same thing is going on in the F35 world. And you're right there in the middle of the threat. They're all around you. And how do you get that information back so that somebody can use that the next day? Uh, and and I've, I've been torn with it a lot because a lot of times you would get the guys up there would say, I'm going to support the Intel world now. So instead of going out and have my tactical guys go out and kill things, I'm going to go send some guys out and collect data. Now, that's the one thing you really don't want to be doing in a threat world is going out and collecting data in a threat world. But if, I, but if the happenstance you're there, and that's your task today, is to go out and, and kill things, you know, support fighters that are going through, if you're there and you're there and you can collect it, there ought to be a way to go get that stuff back to the intel world without, without disrupting your mission, your primary mission. And there's always been a fight there. And a fight for the money, a fight for the classification of it. You know, Intel would probably want that to be called top secret whatever, 
And we would just say, hey, it's confidential. We were there. We know what was happening. We don't really care what happens with it. Don't give us any any more classification burden. So there's always been that, that, that let's collect the data so you can use it. And I think the part of the world that the fighter world always forgot was that information you got today is either going to save you or your buds tomorrow if it's used properly, and if it can be done without impacting the fighter world. And we've never gotten the, the communities to come together well enough. And I fought a lot in the HTS world and the HTS Bo, they pushed it off as much as they could. The maintenance guys pushed it off as much as they could. The Intel world pushed it off as much as they could because nobody wanted to be responsible for, I'll go collect that data after the mission. I'll somehow categorize it. I'll somehow get it into the flow, uh, whatever. You know, ops guys don't want to use it. They love the playback side to go replay what went on during the mission, but they don't want to then have to sit down with Intel and go through all the bloody details of all that stuff again to please the Intel world. So the it's that, uh, yeah, the thing that turned it off for the Conrad for the F4G, we had a, a, a name that will not be mentioned, uh, a friend that was in, uh, I call it no such agency. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, they were the ones that were trying to get uh, the data, quite frankly. And it was, it was the same well, in the F-16 world. I played that game for so long. We stopped, we stopped it cold and we said, okay, good. We're going to have three squadrons worth uh, flying uh, uh, 22 sorties a day. How much data do you want? Uh, what? Yeah, 22 sorties a day, hour and a whack. Uh, we're going to put it all together. You don't have enough bandwidth to ship it. So how do you want us? You want us to cut CDs? We didn't have CDs in those days. It was Memorax, remember? So how many tapes full of this stuff do you want it? And who do you have to analyze it? Uh, uh, and of what utility will, and how much time lag? And as a result, the the fleeting intelligence of it is gone. Yeah. Let, let me give you an anecdote. <clears throat> In, in probably August or September of 1972, <clears throat> we had a bright guy from an agency who will remain unnamed come over with his neat little pod and he wanted to hang this on our F-105. And he said, now what you gotta do is get between the SAM and the launching site with this thing. And we looked at him and said, you are absolutely crazy unless you wanna come fly with us. Yep. <laughs> yep. So just to disambiguate in my mind then some of the things that you've been talking about. So this is good technical discussion. I'd like to stay with it. And then maybe we can uh, sort of elevate the conversation to things like the theater, folder gap you mentioned, Iran, you mentioned tactics, development, that kind of stuff. Um, but let's stay with the technical stuff for the moment. So I've got my original Dash 34 here, my F4G Dash 34. It's talking about APR 47 and it's talking about the weasel attack signal processor. What are those two, the WASP, what are those two things then? Um, and, and then once we've talked about that, I know this might sound strange. I just want to say it so you're prepared for it and I don't shock you with it. But it would be really cool for me to hear how you would fly a mission with those systems. You know, if you, you take off, you've got to go and kill something. How would you fly a mission? What would you each be doing? What are you be doing in the front seat? What are you doing in the back seat? How do you interface with the controls? What sort of beeps and squeaks are you expecting to hear? Whatever you can remember, whatever you can share. But but maybe, so 
let's talk a little bit about those systems then. What is the difference in the APR 38 that you talked about and the 47? And then what's the WASP? Just for a quick and dirty, to make it easier for you, Steve, uh, the APR 38 became the APR 47 with the addition of the WASP. The WASP was nothing more than the upgraded signal processor going from, and it had other bells and whistles too, without getting into the weeds, upgrading it from 64K to to 50, uh, 256K. Yeah, I think the old computer was called the Hawk and the new computer in the, in the, was in the, the 47 was the WASP. Weasel, weasel attack system processor. Signal. Signal processor, yeah, yeah. But the Hawk became the WASP, 64K became 256K, and the 38 became the 47. That was the PUP phase one, performance upgrade program phase one. So that, that, eases up that nomenclature. But I'll let uh, Lucky and Ed go through a normal mission. My, my background primarily, with, I did uh, a lot of the flight testing and then as a result, we're initial cadre of instructions. Those of us that did the flight testing understood how it worked. So we ended up building the syllabus until and building the, the introduction slides for the first groups of people that went through the system. And then, we let uh, uh, Panic Bear, uh, Michael Bryan, took over a whole, <laughs> yeah. whole uh, test or an agency to, for training and took our slides. And I still have some upstairs that are steam driven. I mean, we didn't have our, we didn't even have Harvard graphics back then. This is before PowerPoint, before Harvard graphics. This is drawn on vellum. And the first classes got hand drawn by yours truly or Denny Haney. Uh, and uh, that's how that's how our training started on the system because we understood the system and had to in order to flight test it, and that's it was a natural. So I, I was kind of jaundiced in the sense that I was more technical in the application, and we realized the impact on the, the tactics and procedures were going to be hugely different than us old steam-driven 105 guys, and as a result. Uh, they fired up uh, Tifwick, the Tactical Fighter Weapons Center at uh, Nellis, fired up a, a detachment as part of our test team yep. to actually use X number of our sorties, what a certain percentage of our sorties for tactics development and document it and get it so that they work with the schoolhouse and, and get guys going in a different world. And, and some of the baby weasels, I call them that, when they came in, uh, you know, the second and third year we were in this. They came in as captains, lieutenants, and didn't know any different. And they didn't have the, the 105, uh, let's call it, habit patterns. And, and they thought Shrike was a great weapon because they, could, they could get it in a basket. And us 105 guys thought of Shrike was a, a bottle rocket, you know, because it, just that change in technology changed our tactics, changed what you do. That was huge. But you guys can walk through a mission. Uh, as a result, I'm, I'm more technical side of the house than, than I was operational side of the house in the F4G. Okay, so T-Bad, just okay, um, uh, quick change of plan then. So we do, we'll walk through the mission in a minute, but let's just stick then with what you were talking about. So there's two things I'm thinking. These days, you've got OFP, you've got software. We still, I think, have the same problems. You you know more than you can fit into the machine, right? So you have a threat library for a radar warning receiver, and you'll tailor it to the part of the world you're operating in. You said you had 212 different threat systems that you had to program in. 
did you not um or, or why couldn't you sort of um you know strat- stratify that data and say well this is for the middle east this is for this is the, these are the systems that are prevalent in the middle east or whatever why could you not break it down because like his squadron got called on demand to be there in 36 hours yeah. i don't have enough time to you know his his squadron's going to be scrambled yep i had a big enough time and i'll tell you a story later on we talk harm but he, he doesn't have i don't have time to pro- reprogram it I can have them on the shelf, but then how do I get that through the system and reprogram back to we're, we're steam driven days still. This is we're talking the mid 80s. We didn't have Internet. We didn't have bandwidth. We, we loaded this thing with a tape. <laughs> and, yeah, so, yeah software, and, a software change wasn't like you could make a software change today and put it in your thumb drive and poof, you now upgrade it. It was a big effort to go get an airplane modified or re- reprogrammed with software. Just even doing a test jet was a was a big difficulty. So doing it in operation, it would have been would have been impossible. Yeah, and we had to be ready to we had to be ready to go with what we had. Like you say, uh, we'd get uh, twelve hours for crew rest, and off we'd go to whatever part of the world. Uh, so you, you, know, you go to war with what you got. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Now, if you had a bigger, like today, in today's airplanes, there's no, I say there's no limit, there's a limit, but <laughs> it's not condensed like it was then. You could have four or five uh, OFPs, up, not OFPs, mission data files, which is different. Uh, you could have four or five theater-specific data files up there, and you could just call down the one you need for that theater. Yes, that 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 could happen. But at the time, we, I mean, in 64K, we didn't have enough room. We, we, you, you got wherever you were going, that's what the best we had. And that's why the F4G as initially deployed was a squadron in PACF at Clark. And then there was a squadron at Spangdalem. Uh, and they had uh, theater unique mission data files uh, to address the threats that were there in the theater. We, they were uh, callable tailored. Uh, the data all existed internally, uh, but it was that we never got to the place. Ed, you may correct me here, where we really had two separate uh, MDFs. No, not in the F4G. In fact, we even uh, never really did that in the in the HTS either. No, it's uh, it's you do the worldwide essentially. Really, okay. And and especially since with the mobility of threat and who's selling right. what to whom. You didn't know where that was the argument we had in the room. If anybody can tell me exactly with perfect intelligence what who's selling what weapon system to whom, I'll go with that the tailoring. But nobody can do that to you. The intelligence, especially, especially with the French in the mix who are selling anything to anybody. Exactly. And it, it, the philosophical arguments and building this and putting it in is really tough because the argument with deployability versus uh, specificity for that theater is tough, hmm. especially the stateside units that had to go both ways. Uh, yeah. The other thing that I was thinking in TBAD, just on, on that uh, developmental side of things, um, was how how good the development resources were so and i'm thinking particularly about flying its real threat systems so uh, i don't know if you guys were aware when you were in vietnam 
uh, or you became aware of that later. The CIA has declassified um, Havglib, which was their, uh, you know, array of, th- of real-world threat emissors, SA2s and so on, uh, out there in the um, test ranges in, uh, at Nellis. Um, so that's declassified. But did you get a chance to train against real systems? Were you having to rely on certain predictions around the performance of the of the aeroplane? How much was real and how much was um, simulated? Yes. <laughs> of yes. course. <laughs> well, we had a very good uh, we had a very good threat array up at Tonopah. And there was also one that we used to call Sea World down at China Lake. Echo Range, had, yeah. had, had naval SAMs on it. And so we worked against both variety. And, and uh, the simulators on the flight test ranges were based on uh, exploitation, uh, quite frankly. And they were very, 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 very good simulations. Flight and the, the, people, the flight test ones. And the people that were operating them had operated them for years. So these were these were 12 level operators and really cagey. And so it was hard to get in their knickers without getting shot. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm being careful here in the sense that uh, the test emitters, we spent a lot of money on to get them the fidelity that they have to be. Uh, the training emitters were really good, but as you can imagine, getting the there's a cost versus fidelity issue, and yeah. uh, we had and the issue was, and that was one of the problems in the F4G, <clears throat> is that we were very very frequency tight and and uh, pulse recurrence frequency of the the radar etc. And a, a a training emitter to light up an R, an old RWR was could be pretty sloppy, but if we looked at it. In the F- F4G, it was too sloppy to fit in our windows. And as a result, uh, by sloppy, I mean it would allow variances, significant variances in frequency, significant variances in, in pulse rep- reproduction. And, and as a result, and maybe the pulse width is not quite as sharp and defined as you'd have to have to function correctly in a real system. But it lit up the RWRs for the all the other F4s, lit up the RWRs and the F16, and, but it, it wouldn't be adequate to test against. So we always had a, a trade-off here of training range versus uh, flight test. And one other thing that we had, one other concern that we had was uh, that those threat emitters, uh, we suspected many of them had wartime only modes that we had not seen through any ELINT platforms, but that we would see on day one of the big bad war that would really uh, roll our shocks down. And if you want to have a lot of fun, try and build an emitter you can bomb. So with yeah. training, remember Lucky's talking about popping up on an emitter and it was in the middle of your uh, pipper? Well, how do you get an emitter that I can put a, even a training munition, a, a BDU-33 on? And drop a bomb on it, and so it's got it can't be that expensive because you're gonna probably well blind pig in an acorn you're gonna you're gonna hit it sooner or later, and uh, <laughs> what, what what are you gonna how much are you gonna spend what to get the, the it's fidelity versus cost at all times and we had what was the nitnoy that was uh, uh, they took a uh, it was a uh, radar. Yeah, we had a boat radar, essentially. 
you go down to uh, your local marina and look on the, the mast of some of these little boats and they've got one of the Raytheon radars and, and they, they, we found out it was tight enough to, to be stable and stable enough uh, to, that you could actually buy it and go out and put it up and, and we could bomb. And that's ended up being the Nitnoy and we put it on a couple of ranges and, and actually tra trained with it. When I was, I just um, had a flashback uh, that uh, ET's call sign was Nitnoy Bear. <laughs> yeah, well, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. One of the experiences we had in USAFE was we wanted to try and do what T-Bear was saying, was be able to go practice that, go out and try and bomb an APR-38 located radio RF target. So we took one of those Nitnoy's basically just a, a commercial naval pleasure radar, pleasure boat radar. And we wanted to get it employed down at the range at Zaragoza. What was the name of the range? I can't remember now. Bardinas Realis. Say again? Bardinas Realis. Yeah, Bardinas, yeah. So to get that on that, it was it was kind of partially owned, I think, by the, by the Spaniards, obviously, since it was their country. So we had to go, we had to go convince the, the RF folks, their equivalent of the of the not trade commission, the FCC. FCC, their their equivalent. We had to get their military, we had to get their governor, you know, people that kind of owned that whole range. So we ended up taking a Nitinoy and flying it over to uh, Torajon. And we took that, we took an F4G over there, we took the Nitinoy over there, and we put it on a uh, on a flatbed. And we got the dignitaries out there from Spain, and we had it, the, the, the flatbed running up and down the runway, or the parallel runway, with the emitter going. And we had the airplane turned on and sitting in the cockpit, and we would take all these dignitaries up and say, this system is fairly good. It can go accurately find this target, and we want to go put it on the range and bomb it. And, of course, they were worried about safety and this and that, that sort of thing. So, anyhow, we'd sit them in the cockpit. <laughs> and literally watch that thread on the skull move up and down and they could look out and physically see the aging, the flatbed. And they, we finally convinced them that yes, it's accurate enough, it'll be safe enough. So they gave us a thumbs up to go put the nitnoids on the Arnitas Rage. It was just a, what a dog and pony show that was. It was really fun. <laughs> First of all, to convince them, they brought their expert Ewo down from wherever. And he yeah. says, no, you can't do, you it's cannot range on a target. It's impossible, not physically possible. It says, yes, it is. We got the park ranger going. It's working good. <laughs> and watch. And of course, we had to cover up a lot of the scopes, but we left the PPI, the plan position indicator, which showed the threat moving up and down on the scope or geographically moving as the vehicle is moving it up and down the runway. It was uh, it was kind of funny, but it worked. We convinced them and I, they were using it ever since. Uh. Well, that's that's a good juncture, I think, to then talk about what a mission would look like. Then, <laughs> so what? So what would you do? So if you, if you were going to go up, let's just take a, a a very basic example. You've got to, you've got to go and strike an SA two site. What what uh, what are you going to do? How are you going to fly the mission? What are you looking at in the back seat? You just talked about PPI indicator. What other scopes did you have? Um, you you know, Tibet. You were talking about taking cuts. Um, you know, so what's the tactic? Are you flying along parallel to it, and at various points sampling to get this you know part ranger thing working, and get range known? 
can can you talk through a mission? What what you know, not not everything, not all the motherhood, but you know, what what are the 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 sort of key components of a mission? Who's doing what at what points? And maybe it starts with the maybe it starts with the mission planning. I mean, the intel. Do do you already know where the emitter is? And, and the answer is, we never, intel will give you some indication of where all the targets are, and obviously you know where the targets are. Somebody has tasked somebody to go attack some target. Somebody has decided here's all the threats that are around that target, and then you go kind of plan your mission from there. Uh, the 38 at the time, you know, you basically had to to do some arc around the target to allow you to to get enough cuts to then slowly hone yourself into this little ellipse and get it smaller and smaller. So the number of degrees, you, the greater number of degrees you could you could arc. Do, arc, the more accurate it's going to get. Remember the flashlight I was talking about on the ground? Well, if you keep rotating that ellipse, it turns the cuts. The ellipse gets smaller and becomes a round circle. Hmm. The more uh, degrees you arc around it. Well, obviously, that takes time. It, time is your enemy. Because if he's on there, he's trying to get to you. So you need to get it in the minimum amount of time. And Park Ranger is a three-dimensional tool. The higher altitude you were, the better graze angle and the smaller the flashlight is on the ground. So you like to be at high altitude, but in in our world, height is not conducive to long life. So you, <laughs> like, to, so you like to be in low altitude, which makes the flashlight beam longer. There, all these trade-offs happen in Park Ranger, and that's why one of the reasons we reconstructed it when we moved to the Wasp, Court Smith down at uh, Warner Robins totally took it apart and put it back together to correlate this, if you got up higher, it would weight the cuts mathematically in the algorithm, put a AI in it so that you minimize the number of cuts in the time. And we got a lot of flight test data to feed that. And he mauled over that over and over. And as a result, uh, our problem was right off the bow. If you're right in front of you, if you didn't have altitude, you're not, if you're going to the threat area, you don't, you're not generating any arc around the threats. And, and all, your only friend is altitude. And, and the court came up with some pretty ingenious ideas and uh, talking to Victor the first night of the Gulf War, um, going into Baghdad the first night uh, without using real numbers, uh, they detected some of the stuff a long ways out and it resolved down to a uh, range quality two really fast. And they had everything set up in the missiles well before they could fire them. And I, I mean, there, there's some real heroes there uh, behind the scenes, guys like Court Smith and Jim Hunley and, and uh, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, down at Warner Robins, Georgia, that, that developed the OFP and evolved it as they understood our requirements to to get us ranging that converged faster, uh, to get us the 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 Schreit bars so they're nice and tight and get the best PK out of it. These guys worked their tail off because they believed in us, and we we helped by getting them flights in the airplane so that they understood what we were doing. 
Well, and the other thing that you mentioned was, uh, uh, Steve, is uh, you know you plan your mission around known threats. The problem was that that uh, cascaded all the way down from Vietnam was there were 31 SAM battalions and 200 prepared sites. And so you never knew where they were going to be. And so we were always wading into a new scenario with a new threat array and having to figure it out on the fly, basically relying on people to shoot at us so they'd give away their position. Uh, and that was if we could see them under a cloud deck or haze or whatever it was that was going on over there. Well, the F4G made all the difference in the world in that because now we had truly an onboard uh, threat array gathering system that would tell us what was there and where it was. We, we in the 105, we were processing one or two or three or four threats at threats and or radars at a time because we we our brain was the processor, we were the yep. integrator. And now the system, the, the weapon system was doing it for us and displaying it all out there. And, and geographically, you could see the layout of what you're entering into. That was just unbelievable. So, so yep. tell, tell, tell us more about that. What, what, do you, what were you actually looking at? Because nowadays people think about tactical situation displays. They've got a nice map. It's a top-down display. Um, it's easy to, I say easy, um, you know, if a threat system comes up, the aeroplane will tell you, roughly where it is, you know, geolocate it for you, and you can orientate yourself that way. What, what, what were you seeing then in the back of an F4G? Well, you were seeing a similar thing. We got a Pipiac, you know, a screen that basically a God's eye view, you in the center, and it would do its ranging and pop the symbols up on that Pipiac, basically showing you the range and bearing. Uh, if I remember correctly, you could designate it and give you the exact numbers, you know, here's the exact numbers, or just undesignated, look at it and say, hey, I know it's over there at one o'clock and I know that first ring is 10 miles. So it's just outside that. So it's probably about 15 miles. And and knowing from pre-intelligence, yeah, that either corresponds or doesn't correspond with what I had originally planned to begin with on the, uh, on the mission. Yeah, and, and you had selectable uh, what scale the scope you were on. And uh, this became... Uh, significant as you got closer into the threat area because you didn't want to have all the long range stuff that sat out on the outside edges, you know, would just sit on the outside edges and the, the stuff in the actual threat area that you're working would be closer to the middle. And was it, so, so you mentioned to you about was classifying things for you. So, you know, a simple example, would it show a two for an SA2, a three for an SA3? Was it that simple? Yeah, well, it had to be. We were flying with fighter pilots. The uh, yes, that's it, was exactly. from a, it was simple from a display standpoint, but it wasn't simple from the background processing exactly. to make that display correctly say it's an SA2 versus an SAX. Uh, and if there was any kind of RF overlaps, whether it be frequency, PR, or pulse width, you know, an SA2 might show up as an SAX or vice versa, depending on how well your system was working that day, whether, whether it was working perfectly. If the parametrics on the guy on the ground was a little out of tune, an out of tuned X might look like a, a an in tuned two, or vice versa. Uh, and and if it's ambiguous, and they were with an ambiguity like that, yep. the signal would mipple between <clears throat> the two options. And what what are they? You know, and we had symbols for other 
you know, the numbers work great because then we could study and remember the numbers for ranges and bearings and et cetera. When we started off, uh, we, we, we ran out of numbers because the contractor told us we didn't need double digits. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, right. We told the contractor to pound sand and halt the moon. Uh, he had to, he had to figure out a way to put double digits up there because just because well we couldn't tell him that it's already coming <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, put a placeholder all the way up to twenty five. No, this is back in uh, nineteen what eighty eighty uh, eighty one. Hmm. Okay, and we're forget it. And this is the IBM, the old IBM guys up in, uh, built the displays up in Binghamton, New York. Built the displays and they're the ones that said, you, you don't need double digits. Yes, we need it. Well, it's hard to do. Well, we're paying you a lot of money. It's hard. Uh, but uh, we had unique symbols. For instance, uh, uh, we had to know whether it was an early warning radar or a EWGCI radar or a uh, eye finder or a, a gun of various mode of a gun and, and even worse was the Navy uh, guns Navy uh, uh, they, they are so unique and I don't even remember the unique symbol for a, was it N5 or it, it was a double digit that we put up EF or a ET that for a but it, all those were classified, and the machine did it for you. You didn't have to listen to it and go, oh, I think I remember that, name that tune. The machine did it for you. And you had all the threats to begin with, you know, however many hundreds of threats are out there that you had to contend with from a worldwide standpoint in your database. But you also had all the friendlies. And I exactly. think the, the, the APR-38 got its first shock is when I went to Europe for the very first time and saw the signal that it's, density very, very high. And it wasn't just threats. It was all your commercial crap over there. And it was just something you couldn't replicate at China Lake or at, uh, or at Edwards or at George. You had to get over it. If you ever taken a look at, uh, what is it, Flight 24 radar or whatever it is showing all the airline stuff, airplane yeah. stuff. I mean, do the same thing with the threats. And it's just like, there's so much out there. So you had to program the, the good guys too so you could differentiate between the bad guys and the good guys and, and not to confuse that issue. And it's say nothing, issue about, say nothing about the F-15s escorting you. Yeah. And the F-16s. <laughs> you had to know that, the, oh, that's okay. That's a good AI, not a bad AI. Or a tanker. Why is that threat on the ground moving? Well, it's really not a threat. It's a KC-135. Yeah. Or whatever. So, so the the the, the interleaving of all that electronic environment out there was really challenging, and the software that did that was awesome. That's the only way I can describe it and give you a clean, what I used to call a clean scope. By clean, yeah, that stuff is there's not a lot of mipples there. It's unambiguously identified, and I can deal with it. And I'm back to the going to war. I know what I got. I, I know what I got my arms around. I can build a plan mentally now as a tactical flight lead to uh, go and attack. What's, and that starts that? with, it starts with what you're armed with, which started back with what's your job for the day? 
Is, is your job to suppress and escort somebody or is your job to go out and troll and find something and go kill it? Two, two different bomb loads, two different uh, uh, all missiles versus uh, missiles and bombs versus, uh, you know, what do you, what do you load it up with? And then that then leads you to what, how the uh, mission goes from there. Well, and then you go one step further into a very complex tactical situation as we envision with the Russian hordes coming through the uh, Polda Gap with uh, good guys and bad guys all mixed in together. And you had to be careful not to kill a good guy. We had uh, a, a couple of cases in Southeast Asia with the 105 where one of our guys shot a, a, a mortar counterfire radar. Uh, and and that was that was very unpopular for us to do. Yes, the Marines didn't like it a lot, and the, <laughs> and the reason is is that radar has a fingerprint that is almost exactly like a threat system, and we had to figure out a way to de-interleave it. And if you haven't had fun until intelligence is great about giving you data down to the Nats patootie on uh, uh, the threat data. But it can't find out anything about blue and white signals, blue signals being friendlies and white being from neutrals. Uh, blue is the hardest data to get, believe it or not. Why? Yeah. Uh, because the way we are structured, uh, have you heard the quote, gentlemen, don't spy on gentlemen? Okay. And as a result, uh, how do we deal with... Uh, uh, the details of our own threat radars. Uh, I made a deal on when we were doing harm. Uh, when I was a test director, uh, the Patriot system was under test. And I met the, at a test meeting of uh, operational testers, uh, the, the Patriot guy for operational test. I said, boy, have I got a deal for you. You need to know what your capability against uh, anti-radiation missiles are, and you're, you're protecting yourself, right? As part of your OTE. I need to know how I can process your signal. Let's make a deal. We ended up deploying down to uh, Holloman. Yep. And, and flying against uh, two test birds against the Patriot missile. They had three Patriots down there on the gun line and and a fourth one hidden off to the side he didn't tell us about. And uh, we did a uh, we, data swap on our two capabilities. And uh, our good friend, uh, Mr. E.F. Hunley, uh, mm -hmm. figured out a special way to program the APR-38. We had a capability to call airborne called priority mode. That you could put parametrics in there and that was your priority for today. He was able to put a way to put that uh, some special features in that test unique hand load um, in there that uh, when we were taxiing out at Holloman, I have a PL and it didn't stand for Patriot. It was priority, but it, we had detected the radars, but there's four of them. Oh, those rotten commies. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did, uh, it went off, went to Squadron Free, 
and uh, briefed a three foot six departure and tacked from behind the, the far ranging one uh, Patriot and came over the top of him at three foot six and said, okay, fight's on. Uh, then went up to medium altitude, collected some stuff for both of them and ended up sharing the tapes back and forth with Patriot. That was only after we had an, a gentleman's agreement. They provided us data and we provided them data. And that's the only way we really got, we're, we're able to put it into our system. Yeah. And that's a problem to all, all up till today. I mean, anybody that's building a, a threat system, a friendly, to us, a friendly threat system, doesn't want to tell everybody else out in the world all those parameters and how it works, because if that gets out to the opposite side, uh, then they're compromised. And so that's always an issue that the, you're always going to fight forever. Um, we're still doing it today, I'm sure. They were when I left. One of the first pictures from the Ukraine was of a uh, couple of big GCI radars that were smoking because the Russians, of course, knew the parameters of the GCI radars because they had furnished them to the Ukraine and they were able to use, look like anti-radiation missiles against them saboteurs. to kill those, to kill those, yeah. They were saboteurs, actually. Oh, but, were they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, hidden in, in grain and their, your assignment is to go knock that radar down, your assignment is to go knock that one down. And uh, they uncovered a couple of them. And, but you're right. The, that, that was a picture of some taking out the WGCI radars initially. Yep. So the bad guys go to school on us continuously, and we go to school on them. And that's why it's a dynamic environment, not completely solvable through technical means. You've got to also be tactical and uh, revise your attack as to what you find on the ground and in the air on any given day. And that's what we learned in, in Southeast Asia. And I think it's probably still true today with the F-16s and our targeting pod. Sure. And today is a good example of when the Intel world and the ops world ought to be really getting together. And there ought to be a lot of HTS F-16s over there in the periphery of Poland, Lithuania, and wherever gathering information because they can go sit down and make that useful in the future. Yep. If it ever comes to that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear that Russia appears to be revealing some of its wartime only capabilities in, in this conflict. Uh, it was really about penetration aids go off of some of their missile systems um, that have been found and recovered. These have got a little IR signal on the back and they obviously emit a, uh, an electronic um, signal at the same time designed to spoof um, air defense systems so they don't shoot down the missile, they shoot down the decoy instead. And um, so there's some indication that they must be desperate to be revealing those sorts of capabilities. I'm sure there's all sorts of things that are going on that uh, people are collecting. And, I hope uh, so. Learning about. <laughs> Cat and mouse. Yeah. <laughs> yep. but, but that's, I mean, that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask when we um, I mean, I, I must say, I've been unsuccessful in getting you to talk me through a mission. I, I've, I've, I've answered, <laughs> so I, I, I accept defeat. I accept defeat in, in doing that. So, but, but that was one of the things I was thinking of. Um, you know, an hour or so ago, Lucky talked about, 
you know, taking over this F4G or or, or sort of commanding this in, this uh, initial F4G unit, and you know, the possibility of going to Iran or the folder gap, gap scenario. What did you think then were the differences, or would be the differences between the war you had just fought in Southeast Asia, and potentially a war in Southwest Asia or in in Central Europe? Well, the big difference was the. Uh, uh, proliferation of multiple different systems. You know, we were basically in an SA-2 and fire can uh, world there with the Barlocks thrown in and some uh, uh, height finders. But we had probably, what, ET, a four or five uh, uh, threat array of uh, of radars that could contribute to the demise of our good guys. Whereas uh, uh, going to... Uh, you know, going as uh, not very much later uh, in the early 80s, going to the Folder Gap or going to uh, Iran to keep the uh, Russians from coming down and taking over the place. Now we had uh, we had pretty well used up all the single digit numbers for SAMs uh, and uh, lots of different variety there. Mm-hmm. So it was just a proliferation of the variety that we had to face uh, from one uh, one experience to the uh, expected next experience. Or a different way of saying it uh, would be, uh, we were faced against threats uh, or threats that had been set up as strategic threat systems, primarily as static uh, uh, with multiple places to maneuver to, but they weren't really built to be on. Whereas the, mo- the, the ones in the Folder Gap, when I was there in the 70s in, uh, uh, in Europe, uh, they were built on uh, tracked vehicles and were shooting off of tracked vehicles, and there were they were assigned to the battalion. Uh, they weren't a strategic asset; they were assigned to the battalion, and and thus the density was there. Uh, you'd have uh, six or eight assigned to each one of the battalions, and however far wide the battalion was, is you'd have six or eight threats. Whereas when you know you'd be entering the battlefield with the F4G, and you could see the line, the FIBA, the forward edge of the battle area, by just the array of the threats, probably. You know, that's what we anticipated. And that was a density issue. We always had a battle of how much, what density could we process? As as ET said, we got all these F-15 radars that are frequency hopping, da 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 all the F-16 radars and the F-4G radars say nothing about uh, the AIs from the bad guys, and, and those are high PRF radars, that being they have a very high repeating frequency or a pulse reputation, and as a result, a lot of density. And then you add the ground threats in with a lot of high PRF stuff, you've got a lot of pulse density you've got to wade through in order to, to have the machine do the magic stuff. Now, needless to say, Ed and I are smart, but we're not smart enough to do that. The machine had to do that. And that density is was huge. And that advent of the mobility of these radars and the mobility of scoot and shoot, that's what drove us to the uh, one being able to, if you have it in your pipper now, kill it. Uh, because tomorrow it's gone somewhere else. And that's my argument with the, our friends at no such agency. Uh, the tape is interesting, but unless you've got a turn cycle of two or four minutes, it's academic because the mobility is what, so we had the detection, the decision-making, command and control, and the execution in one platform. 
we were the only one. Hmm. Everybody else had to go through a mission planning system and plan the mission for that day, for that target of the day. We could detect, decide, and kill. We were the only ones out there that could do that. Yeah, we had our own OODA loop, as, as John Boyd would say. Yep. Uh, and it was a, a constantly fluid situation uh, when we were facing SA-6s that tore apart the Israeli Air Force in one of their wars. And we were faced with an SA-8 that was very low altitude. We even tried uh, flying, stepping down to uh, flying at 100 feet to try to get under those radars. But we knew that the SA-8 had a uh, minimum altitude of 35 feet. And it's a little difficult going at 450 or 500 knots to underfly a missile that's coming at you and is good down to 35 feet. Uh, you got your hands full and your, your uh, life expectancy is really short. That was one big difference, I think, when after leaving uh, leaving Thailand, you know, that war was basically from an Alpha 105 standpoint, it was a medium altitude, a medium altitude world. We got to yeah. Europe in the basic F4, but then again later on in the F4G, uh, basically the go-to-war stuff was going to be a low altitude world. Everything was primarily low altitude. We weren't thinking about being medium at all. And I'm not sure if it was that way when you were there first in uh, in the F4Cs, T Bear. Yeah. But medium altitude, I mean, low altitude weaseling is just a little bit different than the, than the medium to high altitude stuff. And, and lo and behold, we're practicing Europe-wise for all that low altitude stuff. And where do we go to war next? Medium altitude and Desert Storm. Yep. Medium altitude with, uh, with uh, Bosnia, Yugoslavia, whatever that war was. <laughs> so it changed quite a bit back and forth, altitude-wise. Well, at one point, we gave a briefing. Uh, this was in... Uh, probably late 70s, we gave a briefing that showed the uh, fire envelopes of all the AAA and the various SAMs that we went around to all the, uh, all the fighter wings and gave this briefing. And we said, hey, if you guys want to go in at very low altitude, we'll have to go low with you so we don't highlight you. But you really need to stay out of these low altitude threat envelopes of unguided bullets coming up like a thicket that you can't see, but are, that are there and are going to chew your airplane up and turn it into Swiss cheese. That, that brings into mind then the question of, of how much you worked with other platforms then, and, and, you know, particularly in those early days, whether or not lucky you went out there knowing you're going to be working with EC-130s, knowing you're going to be working with EF, you know, what, EB-66s or EF-111s when they, when they came along. Um, EA6s, so on and so forth. Um, because it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that that in, as you've just said, in 1991, um, the first day or so, I think even even some US assets went in low. The, the strike eagles went in low. Um, you know, the S16s went in at medium altitude. The tornadoes went in low and then they switched because they, they had bad losses. And, and depending on what the targets, not depending on what the targets were too. Uh, there's a reason for some of that stuff was low. Uh, what, what can you say about it what can you say about it well it's back to everything else what's your target what's the method for the day if you're going into Baghdad uh, you're going to be medium altitude because there's so many guns and stuff as Lucky just talked about they're going to stitch you alive but if you're if you're going to 
if your target today, and, and I'm talking from a defense suppression guy that worked this in the Pentagon before that it went off, um, we, we were able to, some of the assets we knew weren't going to go downtown because we weren't going to send A-10s downtown. Okay. So, so A-10s, what are you going to do the first night of the war? Uh, well, crew rest is unacceptable because the weapons need to be used. Uh, and so uh, we figured, believe it or not, uh, we got Pavlos to lead the way to some of the, the uh, EWGCI sites that weren't going to move and let A-10s lead the, the Warthogs because the Warthogs are Dave VFR. And so Pavlos got them into the target area and let the A-10s have their way with these sites. It's part of the overall picture. Hmm. So they went in low altitude. Low altitude, high altitude, every, all of them have a reason in a, in a reason primarily to survive but or what your task is, or are you sneaking up to something or are you not sneaking up to something? If you're a big, the biggest armada in the in the, in the neighborhood, and you click, come in clicking sparks off your heels at medium altitude, and come get us because you ain't gonna beat us. That's that was the first night of the war, quite frankly. But but I think that's what I'm that, that's what I'm trying to explore. It's exactly that. So if you took as an example, then the Strike Eagles. So they went in low to hit airfields. A couple couple of airfields they went in low to hit. Now, the argument would have been, presumably, we went in low because they had a surface-to-a-missile capability. They could come and reach us if we were to try and, and, and attack them from medium altitude. So they put themselves into the into the WES of the all the AAA in order to stay out of the WES of the, of the missile systems. Um, and oh, so I'm kind of curious to know, well, so were you guys, would you guys be talking to the F-111 guys and saying, we're just going to jam here and, uh, and I'll lob a harm at this point in time, or is it not that simple? Well, that integrated mission planning is the bottom line. Remember a while ago, I told you about uh, uh, TIFWIC having there, uh, a, a detachment at the F4G. Well, that's part of their charter is the tactical weapons center. And they ended up being the, the host for red flag. That's where these things tie together. And we had tests, separate test sorties where we exploited very specific applications with each other when we did this. And then we try to integrate it in the red flags. So there's a there's a menu of tactics available, written down, for each individual uh, uh, scenario that we could think of at the time. Now we hadn't thought of them all, and this extended to EF-111s working with stealth platforms, with uh, uh, EF-111s working with the harms. So the 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 boys in the in the black hole they called it over there uh, sat down and they tie this together. We're going to try and go over. Oh my word. Uh, we're going to try and go over and do this task. And that's the task was, uh, it was not all threat related. It's what munition are you using? For instance, their fields, they were using a different munitions. They had a loyal to the delivery required because of what they were trying to target and what they, so they had to come in loyal. Can we go back in time a little bit then and talk about the introduction of then the F4D to service? So you've got these capabilities in the aeroplane lucky um, how how do you build on the tactics development that T Bear has been doing out at Edwards or, or you know Channel Lake or Eglin or wherever it is that that, that work was all done? 
How, how did you actually test whether or not it works? Because it's curious to hear about from ET about going to Europe and then seeing all those signals and the density of, of uh, emitters in, in that locale. How do you develop something kind of in the blind? Because I suppose you've just come back from war where you, you test. From day to day, you know what you're doing works or doesn't work, or if the bad guy's introduced a new capability or a new tactic. Um, but now you're going back to a peacetime environment where you're doing things, and I guess, okay, you might have threat emitters you can train against, but and you've got some intel maybe coming in about who's doing what and how they use it. How, how do you build confidence, though, that the tactics you're developing are going to work? Uh, you have to be agile, very agile tactically. Uh, we had the advantage of an F4G squadron at Spang, an F4G squadron at Clark, and so they were the theater experts, and I think we planned going to those two theaters to do a lot of cross-tell with those people who were theater experts uh, as we went in. We had basic knowledge of how the system worked, and we worked it on the Tonopah range, and we worked it on the, on the China Lake range, uh, but for uh, theater awareness, uh, we need, we were going to rely pretty heavily on those squadrons for going to uh, 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 RDJTF into uh, the Middle East. Uh, I suppose we were going to have to get some cross tell from our Israeli friends. And I think also, I know when I was in on the F4G, obviously red flag was going on and, and the red flag scenarios would often be set up into we're going to do a European red flag or we're going to be doing a an Asian red flag to try and simulate as much as possible what they thought a European environment or a, or a, or the other environment would be, PACF environment would be. And so you'd get that feedback from those weapons school guys that would come back from, from school or the guys that went to red flag and came back. And a lot of that was then trying to change into your day-to-day tactics and peacetime training. That was yeah, hard to do because obviously you just couldn't go out and fly over Germany all day long or England all day long without any real emitters. So you obviously went out and tried to tried to set up things with the, the friendly hawk guys or whatever. Or what we also have with the F4G was the uh, uh range where we could go and take that massive computer and put in it phantom targets. So you could go and pre-mission plot out where your SA6s and your SA8s and your strategic threats might be in a target area and take that over a low fly region within Germany and say, this is our low fly area. We've got all our four ship of F4Gs with the same phantom range in there. This says over this little town over here, uh, geographically located is going to be an SA-6 complex or an SA-6 and some SA-8s over here, geographically planted. You'd all get outside of the low fly area and say, all right, now we're going to war in whatever region of Europe we're thinking we're having a war and say hack, your phantom range would start on all the airplanes and basically you would now have a phantom threat array that you would then go tactically attack. And uh, if you were lucky enough to be near a uh, an actual threat range or a threat uh, simulator range, I can't remember what it was called in Germany, I forget what it's called in England. But anyway, you integrate your real ones with your fake ones, your phantom ones and try and set up attack scenarios and play that game and then come back and talk about it and shoot your watch off. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that must be one of the, the earliest examples of synthetic training then. Are there other exactly. examples you guys can do? Yeah, that? We, we did that in-house. We, we, the guys at Warner Robins did that. 
just saw him too, uh, and I can't pull his name out right now. That's CRS. The uh, uh, <laughs> he came he came up with a capability, and he said, "Hey, I can overlay the existing EOB. We'll only use eighty percent of it, so we can do some real threats in there too, and put this phantom range in." It was mm -hmm. fabulous, and it was because uh, you know, as a European guy. There are so many days in Central Europe, as you're well aware, Steve, that, it, it, that it's a gray out, but you know, 5,000 feet, it's severe clear above it. And so, okay, it's a, it looks like a phantom range day. And like uh, E.T. says, uh, what's your stake in the ground? And you, everybody is hack at the same time. That was There were some artificialities to it, but that's okay. It cost us nothing to get. <laughs> and you could get some real good training without uh, on a on, on a no no fly day you know and they carried that on the hts initially the hts yeah. didn't have that but we eventually convinced him got the memory and the dollars to go make it happen so that they were able to do the same thing could it could it, could it uh, simulate a, a launch at you and and you could you defend against it and would yeah. it score that yeah, defense but yeah but you're missing all the uh external cues the, yeah. You've got all the electronic cues, and it, you get every the bells and whistles in your cockpit. But you know, back to the basics, you got to look out and see the missile, and you're not believing it. Hmm. But it, you can still get the reaction. You can still get the uh, jamming pod reactions, and all that stuff can be tracked and see. Oh, I didn't have my pod on, or the pod didn't react, or et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very, very, very good training uh, aid. That is a, a question that has just popped into my head then. As as a weasel and um having a jamming pod, what's the what's the balance and or the trick between turning it on to protect yourself and not sort of broadcasting your location or not giving them something uh, to home in on? Do you do you, you leave that to the stand by until you think you're about to die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or or have a good mill setting for it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to explain that to me. What's that? Uh, so you could bomb the thing off and get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, we had the ALQ-105 pod on the, uh, the F-105. And uh, those were, had to stay off for us to get a good look at what the threats were on any given day. And only when we became defensive uh, did we need to turn on the pod and then we need to turn on the pod. And so uh, as I'm in the middle of a sand break, I'd always say pods on, pods on, pods on to make sure there wasn't being missed. Uh, if you could reach the switch. Yeah. Under the G's. Yeah, because of the G's. But we, we needed to do that to just increase that miss distance enough. Our maneuvering capability in the 105 was, was not great. And if we could get that pod to give us an extra 30 feet or so, from out in front of the SAM, then the SAM would detonate close, but it would not be on us, and we would live to fight another day. And the same thing, Amara, we carried the 119 and then the 184. We were always 119 and 131 in the in the F-14. We carried it in the forward spiral missile well. Right. And uh, it was, uh, by that time, uh, things had improved significantly in the sense that we had some automatic uh, capability and that we could fly and standby. One of our problems in the 105, as I recall, was it was a cooling problem. And so we had to give it a rest a lot of times 
and as a result, uh, only make sure it was on standby, but it had to physically turn it on. Uh, there was automation in the in the 131 and the 119 pods that allowed us, uh, again, to be defensive. As 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 Et said, when when you need it, you got to you got to use every trick you got. And uh, it we had challenges in the sense that we did a lot of flight testing with how do we make sure it doesn't interfere with the APR 38? And we, we worked around quite a bit of that. I'll just leave it at that. Hmm. What did other communities uh, make of you guys then? One of the things that was interesting about the EF interviews I did was that, you know, I think uh, the strikers or the fighters just wanted to go and do their thing. They didn't want you know to be constrained by the EF guy saying, well, we need to jam here and we need to do that. And if you're, radiating then it interferes with our stuff or whatever and, and it was interesting lucky you just mentioned giving a briefing about threat systems and then saying if you decide to go in low we'll have to come in with you because we don't want to broadcast your position but were you treated as um because you were shooters so you had a kinetic kill capability were, were you treated in a way that um indicated sort of great respect or were people indifferent towards you how were you going to integrate get back to the tiffwick conversation you, you just mentioned t-bear but how are you going to integrate with other platforms who, who was well, going to get we, to pull the shots we did that at red flag uh, in that first squadron i kept a detachment of four f4gs up at every red flag for the time that i had the squadron and i had to arm wrestle the wing commander and the chief of maintenance and all those folks who didn't think that was a good idea but the idea was to keep the f4gs new capabilities in front of the whole fighter force as it cycled through red flag. And we had very good uh, cooperation, I think very good respect from them. They still thought we were sprinkling weasel dust, but uh, we, uh, uh, we basically informed the fighter force by being there at red flag with them, whatever the tasking was. And, and it carried on because in the desert storm, it got to, we ain't going unless we got the weasels. Well, they, they used to say if we had a beer, because all the weasels had beer call signs. And, <laughs> unless we have beer, we ain't going. Well, and, and further to the point, uh, our one of our chiefs of staff, uh, Dave Goldfine, was uh, shot down on an F-16 mission when they went without the weasels. And that was a big uh, bone of contention because the weasels were laid on and were scheduled as I understand it, but the uh, the flight commander said, "Well, we'll go in without the weasels," and that's when Dave Goldfine got bagged by a Sam. Yeah, back in Allied Force days, the one seventeens wouldn't go without weasels in the air. They were flying out of the eighty first. Yep. Well, well, the critical thing is just to throw some more shit in the game and to com complicate the defense's problems. Uh, and uh, but the, the combination of the F4G and the harm really put the advantage to the defense suppressors for a very long time. That was going to be another one of the questions I wanted to ask whether, whether because of it's, it's another question around the psychology or the uh, sort of emotion, let's say, of, of the mission, but because of the fact you came out of that experience in Vietnam having actually done it and knowing what worked and what didn't. Um, was was there always a sense that um, the you know the other guys could have something up their sleeves 
that you were not aware of and that, you know, on day one you would get shocked by something that, that you know, had previously been undis- undiscovered? I think that was an expectation uh, that we were going to see that. And that's why we had the leaders in the lead uh, to uh, and, and the, uh, the lead crews uh, uh, in our plans to go out and fly those first missions because we had to climb that learning curve very steeply when we saw how the adversary was going to employ against us. But, but the flexibility of the Wild Weasel mission was one of its beauties was that you had to go in uh, very much agile. You couldn't plant your feet. You had to be agile and, uh, and basically learn on the fly. Uh, I often said that, uh, you know, the, 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 the story that uh, no plan survives the first 15 seconds engagement with the enemy, well, that was definitely true of the weasels. I always had a plan, but my plan always got changed as we went in for the day and saw what the threat array was and what their tactics were. And I think they had some pretty high-priced help. And they, I know they had some very good SAM operators down there trying to figure out how to outthink us. Do, do you think that the, um, you know, if you take stereotypical threat countries or threat nations, let's say Russia or China, do you think they would look? they were looking at you wondering the same thing do you think that your capabilities what they knew about what you were doing the development of the f4g the money that was being spent on it think they were looking at you and thinking these guys are serious players i think so and i think that continues today uh, i don't know so much about in the f4g time frame but i know in the f16 time frame especially in allied force the way the guys on the ground played their game they were very well aware of the weasels and they took that into account the way they scooted and moved and overnight did different things. It was, it was an eye-opener at times. And it was kind of the, holy catfish, something's different than what we planned on doing this first day. So there was a lot of scrambling going on. Uh, I think the Air Force learned some things here and there, or the DOD in general. Uh, the, guys, the guys on the ground knew what, what the weasels did. And they planned for it, and they took that into account on day one. Because day two, they weren't where they were before. And Intel was still a day behind. And it was, it was kind of the tactical kind of thing we always kind of anticipated in a mobile environment in Europe. And they, they displayed it in their first few days, actually right up until the end. They were, they were quite effective, I think, with their mobile systems, weren't they, in, in remaining, mm-hmm. you know. And it wasn't just shooters. And, and one of the advantages of, remember our uh, recording devices? In the, our, our fighter weapon school guys are the, the, the weapons officers of the weasel squadrons ended up being the EOB guys. Every base would call, okay, weasels, what's the real no lie EOB? you'll be electronic order of battle out there. None of this stuff that's being fed to us by Intel. And so it was an air crew to air crew uh, uh, intelligence service, quite frankly. Well, we were getting, we were getting stuff back from the F-16s, digital recordings and get that in the morning and the next day, give them a mission data change based upon recordings that they were taking. 
Yeah. This wasn't three digit guys. This was your own guy that just flew yesterday. Here's his data, gets it back over the internet, and we're making mission data changes overnight. And that's the difference between the digital world and the steam driven world that we developed the F4G in. Now, none of that stuff went through a CCB. It was done mono mono between us and the F-16 squadrons. We kept the management out of it. MDF, mission data file changes, and that's the way it ought to be. Uh, but it's got to be done by the guys that understand it. In management didn't like it working that way, but <laughs> they wanted to have it tested on the range before we sent it back over. <laughs> So at the bottom line, the Weasel mission uh, has added, uh, from our perspective, has added to the tactical flexibility and agility of the whole fighter force because they've come to realize that what you see is what you get when you go up against an integrated air defense system. And the Weasels or the harm targeting system or whatever it is, uh, is one of your best sources. And likewise, anybody that is in the defense suppression business, like the current Wild Weasels, knows that what they're going to see on day one is not what they saw on day zero or day minus one. I'll ask a, a question which is not supposed to be pro provocative, but you know, could be seen as being provocative. But you know, in today's world, then, what we know in the open source uh, world about the F-35 and extreme sensor fusion capability and the ability to hoover up all the trons in the air and identify everything, that's transmitting or even thinking about transmitting. Can, can anybody be a weasel these days? Uh, you've got, you talk about the development of WASP and APR 3847 and the fact that the computer, and it's fantastic hearing you talk about how these um, engineers develop these algorithms and develop these capabilities. And obviously that's been taken now to the nth degree where the pilot looks at a very big screen and it's all apparently laid out for them. Um, so can anybody these days be a weasel? What, what is... What is the um, essential element of weaseling that makes a weasel a weasel? My, my feeling can be a weasel. I think you have to have a special mindset or a, I don't know. The, the avionics can do a lot, but there's a different mindset from an air-to-air -air guy to a bomb-dropping guy to a weaseling guy that might have to do all three, uh, but the primary focus being on the weasel side. Uh, I don't know. I've just seen a different mindset when you go to a Wesson and, and work with the weasel guys versus the, the bomb dropping guys. It's just a different mindset on their priorities. And the priority in the weasel side is to get in there and mix it up and basically play bait like it has been ever since the beginning. Knowledgeable bait and with equipment now that can do a much better job of, of making your bait less being less risky. Uh, and the F-35, obviously, is not just the RF stuff. It's sucking up the rest of the world. Uh, IR, whatever kind of magnetic spectrum or electromagnetic spectrum you can think of, taking all that data, fusing all into one thing, and hopefully all things agree, and says that's an SAY. Probably better than we could with just normal, uh, just RF. Exactly right, Ed. And, and the other part of that is, let me come at it from a just slightly different way is remember we were jumping through our hoop trying to develop hardware to put in an, a fighter airplane to do this task. Now we have the fighter airplanes that have the technical capability to do it, and we're missing the air crew 
to do the task, the missionization, let's call it. So in, in fact, in today, could every man be a weasel? Yeah, but if you got to missionize the air crew to do it, okay? Uh, you, you could be, remember the F-4 during that time frame was also an air-to-air -air machine. We had air-to-air -air squadrons. We had uh, bomb dropping squadrons. We had nuke squadrons. We had weasel squadrons of F-4s. Well, we had missionized personnel and, and it reflected in their training. We could do the same thing with a electronic airplane now. You're just missionizing the paint, uh, train for that squadron and the priority of what that squadron does. And when you load it with some, as Ed says, a different mindset, others would argue an element of insanity, uh, that you go off and have that squadron go put themselves and go, na 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 na, can't hit me, uh, and then take it on and kill them. Uh, and that, that mindset doesn't have to change equipment to do it. Okay, that's huge. That's a huge capability. But it also has to do with the fighter pilots' attitudes and yes. the attitudes, as you say, between air to air and air to mud and nuke are all very different. And the weasel is one apart from that. And that's the reason that I love the weasel mission so much was because you could be a thinking man's fighter pilot. As the recce guys used to say, a recce pilot is a fighter pilot with brains. Well, a Weasel pilot is a genius fighter pilot who is always light on his feet and uh, goes in uh, on the on the uh, top of his game to uh, to try to uh, keep his fellow fighter pilots and fellow uh, people flying in the environment alive. So it's a bit of a sacred mission to uh, to try to protect all the others. So you've got motivation and you've got attitude that makes a a weasel pilot. Uh, what he or she is. There was a report recently that uh, one Ukrainian Su-27 was shot down over Kiev and it was shot down by a, an S-400 um, system from 150 miles away. Uh, it was based in Belarus. And I think back to your early experiences uh, or your, your your recounting of your early experiences in, in Vietnam and that relatively short-range SA-2 system and the compression of time the speed at which you had to think because none of this was being processed for you automatically. And then I compare that to what's happening today. Do you think that the, the task of weaseling then now is more difficult? And this isn't supposed to be a divisive question. It's not we're better than them. But do you think it's more difficult? it would be more difficult to execute that mission today given that you can be shot at from 150 miles away? Or is it more difficult when you've got very lim limited time because the ranges are shorter? Or is there another take on those different on those two different? Um, well, my argument things. is it's a different take because it's a strategy of how you're going to do defense suppression. I'd, I'd pull it up to say defense suppression is the mission area, and then how the wild weasel is a part of that. And remember that OODA loop is what that Lucky alluded to is really the key. So what do you deal with? I mean, fixed sites, uh, strategic sounds. The, the weasel portion of it is against the mobile threat. The strategic threats, you know, that's why God invented 117s and, and, and B2s and, and stealth-like and take them out because they're more, yes, they're still uh, relatively mobile, but they're more static. And as a result, a different attraction or a different missile or a different, 
So there has to be an integrated strategy for defense suppression, not just the we're going to do weasel work to kill all the all the bad guy uh, threat emitters. We have to have a strategy like the the, the Pavehawk A10. Mm-hmm. There's our strategy for every mana player to take down the, the enemy's defenses so we can play in his yard without worrying about getting shot down. Thanks for tuning in to 10 Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.